Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. All right, Warbirders. I think we've got ourselves a, a historical situation here. I think this is our first part three in the World of Warbirds podcast. So, it's the huge. If you haven't listened to part one and part two, uh, better go get caught up there, and we'll be right here to start with Gliders USA. So, if your only knowledge of U.S. combat gliders comes from movies and TV, you might think that the USA didn't really partake. I mean, the guys from Easy Company on Band of Brothers jumped out of perfectly good airplanes like real red-blooded Americans, right? And in Saving Private Ryan, there is only one glider pilot seen, complaining about how they overloaded his glider with armor plate in the floor to protect the general riding within. Everyone thinks of paratroopers. No one thinks of glider troops. But actually, the U.S. invested enormously in gliders. It's actually as if Air Force General Hap Arnold said, Okay, I've seen the German and British glider program, and I'll raise it by about 15,000. The U.S. had both the disadvantage and advantage of starting late. The U.S. was years late in getting going on this. Regarding airborne forces at all, the first U.S. Airborne Test Platoon was only formed in June 1940 to figure out how airborne tactics and equipment could be used, and the 82nd Infantry Division was redesignated, and the 101st were only activated in August 1942 as the Army's first two airborne divisions. Just like everyone else, they figured the gliders would be needed to bring in equipment and also to carry in troopers to a centralized landing zone to get a proper mass of infantry. Paratroopers tend to get scattered. The advantage of starting late, though, was that the U.S. was able to capitalize on all that had been learned in Germany and the U.K. as regards glider operations. They didn't have to go through a lengthy experimentation stage with gliders that were too sailplane-like or too small or too big or whatever. They were able to distill all this knowledge and experience down and turn it into an unlikely hero of an aircraft. The Waco CG-4. This thing does not look impressive in the least. It doesn't have the grace of the DFS-230 or the Hotspur. It doesn't have the classic aircraft lines of the Horsa or the wow factor of the huge German Gigant or Mammut or big British Hamilcar. It looks like a minivan with two slab wings and a tail. But just like a minivan, they may not be pretty, but they can be damned useful. The CG-4 was designed by A. Francis Arcier, who was the chief engineer of the Weaver Aircraft Company, or Waco. I literally just learned that this is what Waco stands for, and I bet some of you just learned it too. Anyway, answering the call for the competition for a combat glider for the Army, Waco tendered plans for the CG-4, and the Army was sufficiently impressed that it basically put the entire program, all of its eggs, in Waco's basket. 
and it was a lot of eggs that the army was looking for. They wanted almost 20,000 gliders. Think about the numbers of gliders Germany and the UK had built, and just let that number sink in for a bit. And the US government demanded that no aluminum be used in these gliders, and no current power aircraft manufacturers could be contracted with to build gliders. So although the Ford Motor Company made the most at about 4,000, the others were built by a motley crew of contractors such as Steinway Piano, Viome Box and Lumber, Storecraft of Nebraska, Roebling Wire Rope Company, and a couple of the weirdest, Anheuser-Busch and H.J. Heinz. Yes, the beer brewing company and the ketchup and pickle bottlers. The CG-4 was a strut-braced high-wing monoplane. The wing was constructed of plywood covered with a doped fabric, as were the control surfaces. The fuselage was very strong, being made of a welded steel tubing frame, again covered with doped painted aircraft fabric. The cargo compartment was a rectangular integral box made up of plywood construction with tremendous strength and rigidity and the floor was rated to carry more than 300 pounds per square inch. The cockpit was a welded steel tubing frame covered with fabric and plywood. The nose of the CG4 could open upward to make a clear way for the loading or unloading of cargo or vehicles. In there could fit a Jeep or a one-quarter ton Jeep trailer fully loaded with combat, medical, or radio equipment, or a 75mm howitzer, or a 37mm anti-tank gun, or a 57mm anti-tank gun, or a specially designed airborne mini bulldozer for runway construction. For troop carrying, it could carry 13 fully equipped glider troops. If it was carrying a Jeep, it had that automatic opening feature of the Hamilcar where as it drove forward, a wire and pulley would swing up the nose. There are some interesting YouTube videos of training films on how to load and operate the Waco and I'll include those links for you to check out. So it seemed that the US now had a glider to do the job. The only problem was that they had no one to fly it. And when I'm saying no one, it's not a figurative term, suggesting that there were few glider pilots in the army. There were none. Prior to September 1942, Air Force records listed no glider pilots at all. And unlike Germany, where there was a pool of trained glider pilots that had developed organically prior to the war, in the U.S. there was little tradition of glider flying. A search of the USA at this time found only 160 licensed civilian glider pilots. For one reason or another, only 25 of these were suitable to be instructors. Somehow, this tiny nucleus would have to train the 40,000 glider pilots that would be needed to fly the 20,000 Wacos that were being built. The first graduating class only passed six new pilots. Unlike the German and British programs, which built up gradually, this required a Herculean crash effort to train these pilots. 
As the classes completed their programs, the best students were kept back to instruct others, and in this way the training organization developed. But this led to an enormous shortage in training aircraft. The government initially bought out all the privately owned sailplanes in the country, and ordered all the training gliders that the three existing American sailplane companies, Frankfurt, Schweitzer, and Leister Kaufmann, could make. It wasn't enough. In desperation, Aronka, Taylorcraft, and Piper were all tasked with de-engining their existing powered aircraft and turning them into training gliders. In the end, thousands of glider pilots were trained to fly the almost 14,000 gliders that were eventually built. Waco gliders were even transferred to the British, who called them Hadrians. Besides the scale of the effort, there were also two more fundamental differences in the glider forces of the U.S. versus the Europeans. Understandably, given the trouble it was taking to train them, U.S. glider pilots were seen to be a valuable resource not to be wasted as cannon fodder after the landing. Now, although many of them did fight in ad hoc units, and no one is saying anything about their bravery, they liked to say that the G on their pilot's wings for glider actually meant guts. But the philosophy of the Army was that these pilots should land deliver their loads, and then make their way back to friendly lines in order to be recycled for future operations. I have read that this caused some consternation with the glider pilots and some friction between them and the fighting men that they were delivering. For although no one expected fighter, bomber, or powered cargo pilots to pick up a rifle and run towards the enemy, the close proximity of the army glider pilots to their fellow soldiers made it seem awkward after the landing when they basically said, eh, good luck, see you, wouldn't want to be you, as the glider pilots headed for safety. But this philosophy did fit hand in hand with the intention to reuse the gliders too. You'd think it would be the opposite. I mean, they were churning them out like beer cans, and, fair or not, the USA has a reputation for being a throwaway disposable culture. But maybe the idea that the US was fully fighting two enemy nations and would need everything that it could get to defeat Germany and then Japan caused the US Army to consider developing the technology and the techniques for retrieving used gliders from the battlefield. And this takes us into the fascinating history of what became known as snatching, or picking up gliders from the air. In 1929, Dr. Little S. Adams of Paint Lick, Kentucky. Yes, you heard that right. I looked it up. There is a place called Paint Lick, Kentucky. If anyone knows the story behind that, I'd love to know it. Anyway, he was a dentist and incidentally, a direct lineal descendant of John Adams and John Quincy Adams. But none of those are the reason that he is in our story today. He was also an inventor, and his desire was to come up with a way for picking up airmail from places, I guess, like Paintlick, that were too small to have an airfield where airplanes could land. Railways have been doing this forever, with mailbags hanging from a hook, and picked up by the train crew as they went by. 
So why not come up with a way to do it via the air? So Adams teamed up with Richard C. DuPont, another guy with famous relatives, this time E.I. DuPont, the founder of the massive DuPont Chemical Company, in order to make the idea a reality. And by 1935, they had come up with a workable system. At the location where a bag of mail was to be picked up, two poles would be set up with a looped line stretched between the two poles. The aircraft would trail a hook from a line dangling from the airplane to snag the line with the mailbag. With a workable system, the All-American Aviation Company, or AAA, was formed and two postal routes were acquired. One ran from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh with pickups from the little towns in between. The other route started at Pittsburgh and connected a series of small towns in West Virginia and Southern Ohio and then back to Pittsburgh. A single-engine Stinson SR-10C monoplane was used with their system to pick up U.S. Postal Service mail pouches on the fly from the small towns which had no airport. When the war broke out and the leadership of the Airborne decided that gliders should be able to be retrieved, AAA was contracted to adapt the system to pick up gliders from locations where the tow plane could not land. Of course, many adaptations had to be made, as there is a huge difference between picking up a bag of letters and picking up gliders weighing in from 8,000 to 16,000 pounds. Simply tying a rope to the tail of the tug and then snagging the line would lead to far too much of a jerk and a load on both aircraft, potentially destroying one or both. The eventual result was the AAA Model 80 heavy-duty pickup system, which was usually installed in twin-engined Douglas C-47 transports. The system consisted of a controllable, motor-driven, energy-absorbing drum containing 1,000 feet of flexible 5-8-inch steel cable, twin pulleys, and explosive cable cutter controls. The mechanism was bolted to the floor on the left side of the cabin, about six feet from the front bulkhead of the aircraft. Outside the C-47 was mounted an adjustable 20-foot wooden arm on the left side of the fuselage that could be raised or lowered electrically. At the end of the arm was a cable attached to a steel hook. There was an explosive bolt device to quickly cut away the glider if something went wrong. On the ground would be the ground station unit kit, which was made up of two steel and wood pole assemblies, which were 12 feet tall when assembled. Special spring clips were attached to the top of the wood section, which held the 15 16th diameter nylon loop, which was in turn attached to the glider to be picked up. A spring system pushed the poles outward, keeping the nylon line taut between the poles. And then later, when the glider was snatched, forced the poles outward and onto the ground to avoid having the poles getting entangled in the nylon line. The nylon tow line was actually part of the shock absorbing system of the unit. It would initially stretch up to 25% of its length, taking up some of the shock and then gradually return to its original length. 
the occupants of the glider would only experience a gentle 7 tenths of 1G and for only about 7 seconds, which is actually pretty gentle. The normal procedure for pickup was for the ground unit to prepare by setting up the poles and loop and then radioing to the tug that they were ready. The winch operator aboard the C-47 could then set the pickup drum clutch snubbing adjustment, which was based on the glider's weight and the aircraft's proposed speed at the instant of the cable hook glider rope loop engagement. For this, the operator had a handy-dandy chart with recommended snubbing settings for various glider weights and aircraft contact speeds, etc. The C-47 would then approach the ground pickup station at about 20 feet above the terrain, between 130 to 145 miles per hour. At the moment the tow rope was snagged by the C-47's trailing hook, the winch drum would pay out cable rapidly, then more slowly as the brake took effect. Within 7 seconds, the glider would accelerate from 0 to 120 miles per hour and would become airborne in as little as 60 feet, depending on the glider load. At the same time, the extra weight of the glider slowed the tow plane to about 105 miles per hour. Slowly, the cable drum braked to a full stop and then reversed. The glider, now 500 or so feet behind the tow plane, was slowly winched to its proper trail distance. There was even a procedure for a double pickup. After the first glider was winched in, it was transferred to another tow line using a block and tackle. Then the pickup tow line could be used again to pick up a second glider, which would be towed at a greater distance so as to be behind the first glider. What became known as snatch operations expanded to not just include the retrieval of used gliders. It was used to get completed gliders from the factory to their operational locations, which would save the time of breaking down the gliders into their kits, boxing them up, shipping them by rail, and then reassembling them. Supposedly, double snatch pickups at the Ford Motor Company plant at Iron Mountain, Michigan, were a common occurrence. In a world without helicopters, gliders and the snatch system could be used to perform the same kind of role. The first air commando group used gliders to fly supplies to units fighting behind Japanese lines and flew the sick and wounded out by snatch pickup. In June 1944 alone, about 800 sick and wounded troops were evacuated from the Cabal Valley in Burma via snatch pickup. Following D-Day, snatch teams were sent to Normandy to try to retrieve gliders used in the invasion. Although many gliders had actually survived the landings, most had been damaged afterwards by fighting, shelling, locals, and ground troops. And only 13 of the 517 D-Day CG-4 gliders were snatched out of the fields and returned to England. Supposedly, that statistic royally pissed off General Arnold, and so following Market Garden, he sent teams of hundreds of glider mechanics into Holland to fix up whatever gliders that could be saved and then snatched out. Imagine his rage when 115 of these fixed-up gliders were then wrecked by a storm that blew in on October 17th. <laughs> 
In the end, only 281 of the 1,900 CG4s used in Operation Market Garden were snatched out. The following April, 148 of the 906 Wacos used in the Rhine River Crossing mission in March had been repaired and snatched out of Germany. On the 22nd of March 1945, a historic medevac glider operation mission took place in Europe. Two CG4s landed in a clearing near the Remagen Bridgehead in Germany to evacuate 25 severely injured American and German casualties. Each glider was fitted with six stretchers suspended by nylon straps on each side of the cargo area. Once loaded, the gliders were successfully snatched from their landing site by a C-47 transport and flown to a military hospital in France. An army nurse from the 816th Medical Evacuation Squadron, Lieutenant Suella V. Bernard, volunteered to accompany and care for the wounded en route, thereby becoming the only nurse to participate in a glider combat mission during World War II. The first large Allied airborne assault with gliders and paratroops was during the Sicily Campaign in July 1943. And depending on how you look at it, it was a bit of a disaster or an unfortunate but understandable learning experience. Firstly, there was a shortage of Waco gliders in Africa, and of those that arrived that were there, many had been ruined due to exposure to tropical conditions. When more arrived, it was discovered that the boxes of pieces had been mixed up, and often the instructions for assembly were even missing. Imagine a bunch of IKEA glider kits, spelled undoubtedly with a missing vowel and an added umlaut, with no directions on how to put things together. Even once the gliders themselves had been put together, the pilots were severely undertrained, some with less than five hours on gliders. 30 British horses were also dispatched from England, and during the tow, three were lost to turbulence and German attack. With all of that, it might not be surprising that the actual attack was a mess. 65 gliders were released too early and crashed into the sea. Friendly fire shot down others, and although some objectives were captured, the best that could be said of the operation was that, in quotes, small units had acted on their initiative, attacked at vital points, and created confusion, close quotes. Under the lessons learned category, recommendations were that the glider pilots needed more training, the landing zones needed to be bigger, and Pathfinder units should be sent in first to help identify these. Also, stripes should be painted on the aircraft's wings to help prevent friendly fire accidents. And these would end up being the invasion stripes that we now all associate with D-Day. During D-Day, over 500 U.S. Wacos and over 200 British horses and Hamilcars were involved in bringing in glider troops and equipment for the airborne forces. This time, there was less chaos and confusion, but there was still plenty of mishaps with gliders over or under shooting, going into ditches or hedgerows, or hitting each other. One of the most famous of the glider operations of D-Day was the capture of the Caen 
Canal and Orne River bridges by British airborne forces. The force landed in six gliders from midnight 15 to midnight 20. Three horses landed near the Caen Canal Bridge, two landed near the Orne River Bridge, and the sixth and last that was destined for the Orne River Bridge landed seven miles away due to a navigational error. The glider troops achieved total surprise and secured both bridges within 15 minutes. If you've seen the Longest Day movie, the line that continuously goes through Major John Howard's mind is, hold until relieved. And they did just that, even repelling several German attempts to retake the bridges, including an attack with tanks at 1.30 in the morning. They held until relieved. Interestingly enough, the actor who played Howard in the movie, Richard Todd, was himself a young lieutenant on the attack on what is now known as Pegasus Bridge. Operation Dragoon is one that maybe you've never heard of, as it is historically sandwiched between the culturally louder D-Day and Market Garden. But Dragoon was the invasion of southern France, and the airborne component was known as Operation Rugby. Due to a shortage of aircraft, the airborne drops were divided into two waves. The first group were transported to France in the morning by about 400 aircraft and 80 gliders. The afternoon group consisted of 325 aircraft and 270 gliders. In total, almost 10,000 troops, 221 vehicles, and 213 artillery guns would be delivered to France during Operation Rugby. The relative success of Dragoon slash Rugby would lead to flaws in thinking and complacency in Operation Market Garden, which is, of course, the other mission where many of us were introduced to combat gliders from the film A Bridge Too Far. In Band of Brothers, they portray Market Garden also, but I do not think they mention gliders. But Market, which was the code name for the airborne component, would be the largest such operation in history, dropping over 34,600 men from the 101st, 82nd and 1st Airborne Divisions and the Polish Brigade. About 15,000 were landed by glider and the rest arrived by parachute. The gliders also brought in 1,736 vehicles, 263 artillery pieces and 3,342 tons of ammunition and other supplies. To make this happen, the Allies had 1,438 C-47 or Dakota transports from both the USAAF and RAF and 321 RAF bombers, which had been converted to glider tugs. 2,160 Waco gliders were on hand, as well as 916 airspeed horses, 812 operated by the RAF and 104 by the U.S. Army, and 64 Hamilcars. The chronic glider pilot shortage meant that the U.S. had only about 2,100 glider pilots available, so none of its gliders would have the planned co-pilot on board, but the bonus was the glider could carry one extra trooper. Again, due to shortages of airlift, the drops would be made in waves. Planners saw that it had worked in Dragoon, so why not with Market? The main difference was that in Holland, the drops were spread out over several days instead of two drops on one day. 
Part of the reason for not having two waves was that there was 45 minutes less of daylight in September, and it was felt that night operations would be too hazardous. The whole thing was thrown together rather rapidly, partly due to political pressure to use this massive airborne army that had been assembled at great cost of personnel, resources, and money, and 18 airborne operations had already been cancelled due to the rapidly advancing Allied ground forces overrunning the intended drop zones. The first Allied airborne army, which had been formed on 2nd of August 1944 by General Eisenhower, which included all U.S., British, Polish, and other airborne commands needed to justify its existence. So the attack went ahead, and if you've seen the movie, it didn't work out as planned. During the winter, there was a bit of a hiatus for the airborne forces, but gliders were actually involved in the Battle of the Bulge. On December 26, 1944, 11 Waco gliders landed inside the 101st Airborne Division lines around Bastogne, Belgium, to bring in medical staff, gasoline, and artillery ammunition. Fifty more arrived the next day. The last hurrah for airborne forces during the Second World War was Operation Varsity, which was the airborne component of Operation Plunder which occurred on the 23rd to 24th March 1945, which was the Allied crossing of the Rhine River. Varsity was massive, and was basically what Allied planners had always envisioned for the airborne army. The airlift consisted of over 500 transport aircraft containing paratroopers, and further transports towing almost 1,400 gliders, made up mainly of Wacos, but also having... 420 airspeed horses, and general aircraft Hamilcar gliders. The Air Armada stretched more than 200 miles in the sky and took over two and a half hours to pass over any given point. To protect it, 2,200 Allied fighters provided top cover. Learning the lessons from Market Garden and having the capacity to do it, the massive drop arrived all at once and more than 12 hours after the ground landings had begun, so that the airborne units would not have to, in quotes, hold until relieved, close quotes, for too long. Also in March 1945, two gliders were used to evacuate wounded troops from inside the Allied bridgehead on the German side of the Rhine River at Remagen. 36 wounded soldiers were loaded aboard, and then twin-engine transports snatched them off the ground and into the air and towed the two Wacos to a field hospital in France. Gliders were used in limited numbers and sporadically in the Pacific, and I suppose if the invasion of Japan had occurred, then perhaps they would have played a role in that. But with the surrender of Japan, there was no need. What I find just as shocking as the rapid build-up of this technology and the knowledge of how to use it was its even faster disappearance. During World War II, U.S. companies built almost 15,000 gliders and trained more than 6,000 pilots to fly them. And within a few years, they were all gone. So much so that even the idea of a combat glider has become at best just forgotten or at worst disbelieved as a kind of oxymoron. But the disappearance of glider forces was understandable. 
there was no more need for massive multi-armed offensive such as Market Garden or Varsity, and with the advent of reliable helicopter technology, you could land, fly out again with your transport rather than having to rely on elaborate snatching procedures. But precisely because these gliders were thought into existence, created, used massively, and then disappeared, is what makes me so fascinated in them. They're a bit like dinosaurs, in that they operated on the Earth at one time, but now only exist in memory, less and less every day, or media, or imagination. I hope you've enjoyed this series of episodes on these very unlikely warbirds. Until next time.